um, probably are glad that we're done with the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Um, if you are, don't tell me. So I have to apologize because if I had done a really good thing, I would have thought through this sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount and recognized that it's going to take me way more than eight weeks, which is what this will be, um, October, November, and it would have been about six months. But since I wasn't smart enough to realize that, bear with me, we will be skipping huge chunks of scripture, and uh, someday we'll come back to it, I promise, but just not in the next eight weeks. Um, and then we're going to move into time of Advent right before Christmas, so that's, that's why we didn't just continue it. I um, wanted to, to mention something to you that I didn't put in the bulletin. I didn't even mention it in the first service and should have, um, but we'll talk more about the board meeting this week, and then we'll also make sure uh, to make note of it in the bulletin next week. We have, have a loose partnership with um, an organization called Forge Flint, and what they do is they go into to shot up and beaten down places in the city of Flint, and they rehab and remodel and board up and do whatever needs to be done so that it becomes more inhabitable or so it can be torn down or whatever needs to happen to make it better for the people there. Um, and one of the things that as a church, we, we always want to be looking for are ways that we can serve. And so we'll be taking a group there next summer. It'll be in August. It'll be about the first week of August, about four days. And uh, we'll have some information in the bulletin about costs and those kind of things next week. But be praying about that. I'm convinced that when we find ways to serve others, they're life-changing events for us, and they offer us a different perspective. Um, the truth is we can do some of that same stuff here, and we need to, but it's helpful sometimes to just get away to a different environment that we don't really know. And, um, you know, I guess I had a, one of my uncles put it this way. It's like church camp for adults. Um, so we'd love for you to come and, and have a good time, except I don't know if there'll be a campfire. So we'll, we'll have to see about that. But one of the things that I hear often about people who don't become Christians or why they're not or, or why they don't believe in Jesus or the church or whatever it is, I hear the same thing again and again, and i got to be honest with you, it's a pretty good argument. They often start with, you know, well, the church is just full of hypocrites. And my response to that usually is the same. Well, yes, it is. And sometimes I'm probably guilty of being one. And so we, we then talk about how, how there is a lot of brokenness in the church and how people, we don't intend to do things opposite of what we say, but, but sometimes we find ourselves doing things in our own strength that move us in the wrong directions. And the other thing that I, I hear a lot of is, is someone who, who um, you know, there are a lot of people who, who read a lot. And so they will read scripture and then they'll hear people say things that, well, this is in the Bible. And so someone may go read the Bible and find out it's not really there. In fact, there's some phrases that we hear a lot that, that people use that they attribute to scripture or to Jesus, and they're just not in there. Um, God helps those who help themselves. Not in the Bible anywhere. Uh, this one maybe should be, cleanliness is next to godliness. I like that one. I think that's valuable for all of us. Um, pride comes before the fall. And beggars can't be choosers. By the way, none of those are in the scripture in any, any way, shape, or form. Uh, there are some others that you, know, you could maybe argue, and so we, we didn't bring you those. But, but what I've found over time is that even people who call themselves Christians, we don't really know what Jesus taught. We think we do, but then we read the words and go, oh, that's not in there. He doesn't really mean that, does he? And so this, this series is called, He Said What? What Does He Really Mean? Because I think sometimes we read the scriptures and we read God's word and we read what Jesus says and we go, yeah, okay, I hear what it says here that he said, but I don't think it's what he means. And I want to argue that Jesus is one of the few people in scripture that when he says something, he probably actually does mean it. And so we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, and if you, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Um,
that? Is that can can you hear me here? Can you guys hear me? Okay. All right, because it sounds different to me now, so that's why I wasn't sure. All right, so lost my train of thought for a second. Okay, so we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And so I, I'd like you to stand as we read this, and, and there's a quiz at the end of this passage, so let's see. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't good. And I can't move, so I'll I'll have to work on this. So I have to tell you, when we first look at this this text and these Beatitudes, if we really were to spend a lot of time with it, each Beatitude, each little verse, each little phrase, we would spend probably a whole week on, um, but we're not going to do that, so, so just bear with me this morning as we kind of jump through these and talk about what's going on here, but, but as we read these, if you're like me, the first time um, I read them, I don't remember when it was, but I know I reread them about once or twice a year, because I reread them because every time I read them, I'm kind of convinced I don't like what they say. Because it means either I am not at all who God's calling me to be, or I've got a long way to go. Or, maybe it's not what he really means, and it means something else. And so I, I'm just kind of convinced it's not that he means something else. This is what he really is calling us to. But, but I'm kind of convinced that, that, that what makes this so powerful, this, this teaching, is Matthew begins writing this, and he says, um, he sat down. And that's significant because Jesus was a teacher, he was a rabbi, um, and so what, have, what would have been common in that day is a rabbi or a teacher would teach all the time, at mealtime, as they walked along the road, wherever they went. But what was significant is when a teacher or a rabbi would sit, it was a way without using words for them to say, this is one of the most significant things I will ever tell you. In other words, this is the, the depth of my teaching. This is really important. If you're going to take notes, get out your pen and paper and write this down. And so, in other words, Jesus sits down on the mountainside, and he's saying to his disciples, this is significant. This is worth taking notes on. Speaking of which, if you want to take notes this morning, there's a section in your bulletin. Feel free. Um, But but there's something about this passage that that messes with us, because then it talks about how he's sitting on this mountainside. And the Jews would have understood as Jesus sat on this mountainside, and he sat down to teach on the hillside, which wasn't totally uncommon. But after he spoke next... And he went through these things that he was saying. They'd have begun to recognize or this relationship between what was happening to them there in that moment and what happened on the Mount Sinai when, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. This idea of going up to the mountain where God then speaks to his people. And so what's interesting is these beatitudes, these, these phrases, these principles are the epitome of Jesus' teaching. This Sermon on the Mount that we're going to get through part of it, this is the idea that this is what it's really about to be a part of God's people. 
But if you embody what this scripture says, if you begin to live this out, if you understand this, then you'll begin to understand who God really is and what he really desires for his people. And that's the point of this sermon. And so there's some debate from some scholars whether it was all in one sitting or not, but that's really not a debate because what isn't debated is this the heart of Jesus' teachings throughout his time on earth. But, but as I was thinking about these Beatitudes, and as we read them, they really do kind of go counter to, to culturally what we see and hear every day. And so I wrote a new list of Beatitudes. Uh, you may or may not like them. Um, I'm kind of poking fun, but, but bear with me. So I'm going to read them to you, and you can, you'll see what I'm doing afterward, I guess. Blessed are the rich, for they live like kings. Blessed are the selfish, for they will never have heartache. Blessed are the powerful and reckless, for they will be feared. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the finest things, for they will be the envy of others. Blessed are the manipulators, for they will control outcomes. Blessed are the carnal, for they will be praised. Blessed are those who make war, for they will be honored. Blessed are the cool people, for they will not be belittled and always get invited to the good table. Blessed are you when people envy you, fear you, and tell you how great you are. Then you'll get everything you wanted. Now, obviously, I was being a little bit facetious as we read that list, and we recognize that's not entirely accurate. But what is accurate over time is we begin to recognize that the values of the world we live in sometimes are opposite to the values of God's kingdom. Now, there are times when those values and both, both the culture at large and God's kingdom actually become synonymous. There are times when, when people are persecuted or oppressed that, that even our society at large cries out and recognizes the injustice that happens there. But other times, we recognize that God's kingdom has different values than the places we live and work and play. And so what do we do with those? And what does he really mean in these Beatitudes? And, he, and one of the phrases I hear a lot, and I... And I I'll address the end, but is this phrase, I'm only human? Probably some of you have said it. I maybe have even said it before. But I'm kind of convinced, actually I'm not kind of, I am convinced that that phrase really is worthless when it comes to people who claim to be followers of Jesus. Because when we say we're only human, like it's like this idea that it gives us an excuse to screw up or to make mistakes or to sin. But the reality is if God's Spirit is alive and working, then, then we find ourselves in positions where where no longer can we say, I'm only human, because it's the Spirit of God that dwells in us. And so I'm prefacing these, these Beatitudes with that, that this phrase, I'm only human, only goes so far, because the truth is you're human, but the reality is God's divine Spirit desires to live and dwell within you. And I recognize, that just sounds crazy. I will acknowledge, that just sounds weird. But it doesn't mean I don't think it's true. Verse 3, he begins by talking about, Blessed are the poor, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And at first glance, I don't like this at all because I don't want to be poor. That doesn't sound fun to any of us. And we're not talking here necessarily in terms of poverty, but we're talking in terms of this idea that, that without God, our spiritual lives, we are, we are impoverished. And until we recognize that only when we recognize our own poverty, it doesn't matter wealth, whether it be in, in economic wealth or whether it be in spiritual wealth, that our wealth really is worthless if it isn't for God being at work in us. He goes on to talk about this idea that we're to mourn for others. Um, you know, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I don't really like to mourn. I don't know about you. We've lost a few loved ones in, in, in my lifetime, and you probably have as well. And uh, there's really nothing fun about mourning. 
And sometimes we mourn for other people, and it's not saying, hey, you should take every, every chance you get and mourn for other people. It's, don't seek those opportunities out, but recognize that the way God works is he calls us to put ourselves in other people's shoes, to mourn for them by our presence, to mourn for them by, by the way we share life, to mourn for them, to mourn for the people who find more comfort in stuff rather than in Christ. To find ourselves mourning and wishing and desiring that all people would know him in some tangible and life-changing ways. And that's the kind of mourning that the scriptures are talking about here. It's not talking about, oh, you know, you lost a loved one. I'm sorry, that, that's a bummer. That's part of it. But to mourn as God mourns for his people is something so much deeper and more significant. And I really don't like verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I don't know about you, but there's nothing about being a man and being called meek that sounds appealing. I mean, that just sounds like an insult, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I could tell you that, that you may or may not have known this about me. You probably don't, but I'm a fairly competitive person. And, you know, in our family growing up, there were lots of basketball games, and they never ended with anything other than conflict. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying it's a reality. In fact, it was, it was one of the things that I'll never forget. My mom still says, you know, yeah, Aaron, I'll run into people around town. She said, yeah, I used to play basketball with your son. She said, Aaron, the problem with that is I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because it depends on which ones I'm asking. There was something about when you, when you find yourself an athlete or you desire to be the best at something or be good at something that you kind of put a chip on your shoulder. And so there's this desire in you to always be better than the person next to you, to be the best at something. And, and to be the best, there's nothing wrong with striving for that. The problem comes in when we have to be better than the other person. And sometimes I know I erred on that side rather than the other. Because I'm not saying, like I, I watched football yesterday as much as I could, and, and some of you probably did. I'm not saying that you can't, that to be meek means you can't be competitive, or to be meek means you have to be weak, because that's not the kind of meekness that Christ is talking about. What he's talking about is, you know those people that, that if you say one thing to them, they're ready to fight you. They're ready to jump on you at the moment they can, whether it be verbally or physically or whatever. But there's something about them that says, you know what, you can't say that to me. And they get real defensive and they become that kind of a person that we go, oh yeah, one of them. We, you know, we laughingly say in society, because I'm, I'm not very tall, so I can say this. My dad's six foot four, so I can make fun of short people because I'm kind of short. Is that, you know, we always say, oh, little man syndrome or whatever it might be. But what I'm convinced of is this, that that doesn't offer us any value in life. In fact, it does the opposite. It detracts value from life because it, it, it puts us in positions that we try to, to prove something to someone else. But meekness, when it looks like Jesus... He doesn't care when you make fun of yourself or someone makes fun of you. We find ourselves caring when someone makes fun of someone else. And it's not about selfish anger. It's about selfless anger. Because when Jesus modeled this for us, he, he was led to a cross. It was crucified. When they're belittling him and ripping on him and physically beating him, he didn't retaliate. But when he walked into the temple and saw what they were doing to the, to the poor people of the city, because really that was the problem in the temple. When he turned over the tables and he drove people out of, out of the temple, it wasn't about just even the, the money-changing hands. It was about the fact that they were taking advantage of people who came to worship God. And that angered God because there's something in, in us that recognizes that God is the God of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. And when we find ways to put ourselves in positions 
to gain, gain authority over someone rather than recognizing that meekness says, I can back away and I can walk away. And meekness is a trait that is Christ-like, but it's not a trait that's often complimented in our society. I don't know very many kids say, you know, Dad, I'd really like to be a meek man. Because we, we attributed meek with weak, but that's not the way Jesus is defining this. Um, I, love, I love verse 6. This idea, 6 says this idea of hunger and thirsting for righteousness. Um, for you will be filled. Okay, well, I, I'm, I sometimes get hungry. In fact, I'm going to have a piece of pie later now. Um, but we find ourselves in positions where we begin to not know what to do with this, right? With this hunger and thirst. Okay, well, they're hungry and thirst for righteousness. Sounds good. You want to be a good person. You, you want to be righteous like that. Okay. But if you were to, to go back and look at the, the Greek words, and I'm not going to do that because I don't want to bore you, but, but, but basically the hunger it's talking about here is that that's near starvation. You're almost to the point of death. And, that, and the thirst it's talking about is this idea that when people in the Middle East would be in the desert, and a sandstorm would come up. They would cover their face as best they could. But when the sand would whip through, it would cut through everything. And so they would find sand in their throat and in their nostrils. They could barely breathe. And all that would be life-giving for them at that time was water. Because they were so dehydrated because the sand would just suck the moisture out of their bodies. And so he's saying to hunger and thirst, to be near starvation, to recognize that if you are willing to seek after God in that way, that you will be filled, that he will fill you with his spirit, that you will be made righteous in the image of God. But only if you seek after him as if you were starving to death or you're about to die of thirst in the desert. This, this is not easy stuff. I've got to be honest with you, I'm convinced that, that God doesn't want to to give us good things and make us good people, but he wants to make us great people. And so that sometimes means that the teachings that he has for us shape us in different kind of ways, that, they don't, that they're not necessarily easy. But to be great doesn't always require easy. It usually requires work and sacrifice. Verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And, and mercy, at first glance, you say, okay, I, I can do that. I, I can be merciful. I can I can." Yeah, okay, that, that one doesn't sound too bad. You know, it's just looking out for others. I, I can live like that. But the problem comes in when, when mercy begins to look hard, when mercy becomes this idea that we begin to look out for others first and we begin to put ourselves second and, and mercy puts us in positions where, where sometimes there's shame and we cover it up for someone else. And sometimes there's you get made fun of, and it's not fun. Sometimes it means, to, to be merciful means that when, when the right thing to do is to punish, it's to say, I'm not going to. When the right thing is to do, to this mercy recognizes that, that you know what, that may be what you deserve, but it's not what you're going to get. And mercy's hard. And I love what happens in Matthew chapter 9. If we were to jump ahead, we're not going to. But, but I'll just tell you the story where the Pharisees come to Jesus as he's eating with these tax collectors. And they say, you know, what are you doing eating all these sinners? And his response, well, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. I came for the sick, not for the righteous. And he's referencing this passage in Hosea that, that says this, that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. A changed heart over burnt offerings. 
This idea that, you know what, you can, you can give me all the stuff you want. You can lay down animals on an altar. You can give me your money. You can give me your time. And I don't care about any of that stuff if your heart doesn't change. That you can give me everything you have, but, but until you give me you, I don't care. Until you give me you so that you can be merciful because I am merciful. That I don't care about your sacrifices. Because God is a God of mercy. Verse 8 says, uh, pure, only the pure see God. I've got to be honest with you, the idea of purity sounds nice in some ways, but, but in, in our words, in our thoughts, in our deeds, in the way we live, to be pure becomes a, a difficult kind of thing. It puts us in positions where we're going purity in everything I think. Mm, don't want anyone inside my head. And what I do, well, no one will know. But only the pure will see God, and so it begins to be this thing that shapes us, that, that if we really want to know God, if we really want to be his people, if we, if we really want to do this, then this is looking harder and harder and harder. And you're saying, Aaron, aren't you supposed to want people to come to church? Well, yeah, but you're making it harder for them to want to be here. Maybe. But I'm kind of convinced that people who haven't decided to follow Jesus with their lives, the reason they don't commit is because it seems like no one else has. There's nothing that separates the people of God from the people of the rest of the world. Their lives look no different. Their personalities are no different. The words that they say, the way that they live, there's nothing that separates them from everyone else. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons and daughters of God. To be a peacemaker... You know, we know that Jesus tells us that he wants his peace to dwell in us and that he gives us peace, but, but to not only receive the peace, but to be a peacemaker is to be a peace giver. Now, I can't imagine, and maybe you, you can better than I, but, but what would it look like if, if people in Washington, in the House, in the Senate, if they were peacemakers, if they were merciful? I don't even know what the result would be, but I know it would be better than whatever is going on right now. Or not going on right now. But can you imagine what the world would begin to look like if people really were peacemakers? I mean, can you imagine if Christians, if that was our first goal to be peacemakers, if we live that out? I mean, I, I really can't. Um, some of the spending issues would be taken care of because there would be no other things going on. But, but to be a peacemaker is to be a reconciler, to recognize that relationships are meant to be made right, not wrong. To be a peacemaker means to go into situations sometimes involving you and, other, and someone else where you have been wronged and to make peace even when it's not easy to do. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecuted for righteousness. Now I've got to be honest with you, I don't want to be persecuted. Maybe you do. I'm impressed with you if you do, but I really don't. But it's about recognition. But if it's about recognition, if our lives are about being recognized for what we're doing, then we're never going to find ourselves following these, these principles of Christ very well. If it's about recognition, we're never going to be living out what Jesus calls us to in the Beatitudes. We're going to be rejected. Because it's not about recognition, but rejection. Because we establish these values, these principles that are, that are listed here, and, and we would find ourselves in places where they just don't seem to make sense. But, but what I want to point out to you this morning is this, that this begins with 
This begins with in verse 3. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But for the poor, and it ends with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven for those that are, that are persecuted. And in between, it's this idea that they will be. So it's in the, in the first and the last beatitude, it is, theirs is the kingdom of heaven now, and theirs will be the kingdom of heaven later. So we live in this in-between, but not yet, this time where, where God is at work and Jesus has come and the kingdom of God is present here in this reality and God is blessing it here and now, but not just here and now, but in the days to come. So when those days of persecution are over, it's not for nothing. And that's the challenge for us, because what do we do with that? If we're to be reconcilers, if we're to be peacemakers, if we're to be merciful, what does that look like for us? If God is a God of reconciliation, he desires to make all things right. How do we live that out? How do we embody that? What, what does that mean? I have to tell you, when I was in college, I had a professor tell this story. And, and every time I, I say, the story sounds like it's fake, but this is a true story. Um, and every time I, I share it, I, I'm amazed every time. I might have to tell you about this, this woman that walked into his office at the church when he was a, a pastor. And she came in and, and she said, Pastor, I need to talk to you. I said, okay, you know, take a seat, let's talk. So, Pastor, I'm stuck in this crummy marriage. And so he said, I, I wanted her to recognize that you're, not, you're never stuck, that she chose to get married, that she didn't, no one forced her to marry this man, that, that she chose to be there. And he said, well, you know, you, you didn't have to marry him. So, yes, I did, Pastor. I was pregnant. And he said, well, um, yes, but that didn't mean you had to marry him. He said, well, you know, he said, you know, he said, I wondered, no, she had choices. And through this whole thing, she had choices. And so I said, you know, um, when you're pregnant, you could have decided to try to raise that baby alone. You could have given the baby up for adoption. You could have seen if a family member wanted to raise that child with you. You, you could have even had an abortion. He said, I wasn't advocating that. I was just letting her know that there were various options out there that she didn't get stuck. But when I said that last one, she responded with me, and she said, no, I couldn't do that again. I, I couldn't do that again. And he said, so I, I all of a sudden didn't know where this conversation was going or even what to say yet. next, but I just started praying, and so I said, um, how old would your baby be today? She said, Five. So five, that's a, that's a fun age. Was, uh, was it a boy or a girl? A little girl. Now, did the doctors tell you that? or No, I, I just knew. Well, what was her name? Emily. Well, that, that, that's a pretty name. She said, Pastor? I said, yeah. Do you, do you believe my little girl's in heaven? He said, Absolutely. I've got no doubt that God's got a special place for your little girl. She said, see, Pastor, this is why I hate church. This is why I don't want to come. This is why I don't want anything to do with this, because I believe that God probably does love my little girl, and he's got a place for her in heaven, but, but what does he do with me? I'm the one who put her there. How can, I ever go, how can I ever go to the place where I killed my own little girl? And he looked at her with tears running down his, his face and down hers, and he said, this is where you've got it wrong. This is where you've got it wrong. You've, you've got this picture that that's who God is, but, 
But God is a God of making all the wrongs of this life right. He's about a God of reconciling and taking the things that are wrong and the way things here are and making them, making them right. And heaven is the place where all that happens. And so the truth is, heaven is the place where your daughter is the first one to greet you. Heaven is the place where your daughter says, Mom, I forgive you. So they continued to cry and to talk, and as years passed, that the, the couple got better and they had more kids, and they've since moved off and are doing really well on the East Coast. But, but what was missed in that was that she had never understood that God is a God of reconciliation. That God is about redeeming what's been broken, about what's been hurting, about that God is a God of mercy. And I have to tell you, I've never been more angry in a church service in my life than a few years ago. I was attending a church, and, and someone was preaching, and they were talking about this, this exact same issue, and not once... In a room this size with this many people, and, and I'm, I'm sure it affects someone in here, and I apologize if I opened up any kind of wounds. But I want you to hear that God offers you grace in the midst of that, and that morning I didn't hear anything about God's grace. But I don't want you to leave here today ever doubting that God's grace extends to anything and everything in our life because He is a God of mercy, and so He took upon mercy Himself so that the church can embody His mercy so that we can be His people who offer hope and and love to people in places of need and hurt. I, I wrote a line down. It might be one of the best lines you ever hear from me, so, if you, so bear with me. In our silence, in our peace and mercy, in our righteousness and purity, the people of God scream loudly for the world to hear. The kingdom of God is at hand. When we embody these attributes, these traits, these things that Christ calls us to in the Beatitudes, when we embody them, we scream loudly with our words that are actually quiet. Because to embody these things isn't to scream them from the rooftop. It isn't to, to be yelling them from the street corner. It's to live them in the way we live our lives every day, day in and day out, wherever we may go. It's about God making us holy. And you say, well, where is a place that I can do that? Where is a place that these beatitudes can be a part of my life? I'm, you know, I, I find myself saying, God, you know, work in me. And, and I have to tell you, the hardest part about being made holy in this way isn't to find ourselves just kneeling at a cross, but it's to look and recognize that sometimes we are on the cross as well. And only on the cross sometimes can God do the work in us that needs to happen. So the challenge for us this morning is to say, you know, all right, these are good teachings, and he, I hear what he said, and I guess it's really what he means, but I'm, I'm just not sure I want to live that out. I'm not sure that this Jesus thing is for me. I'm not sure that this is for me. And I can say, you know what, all right, but at least we hope you hear about what he really desires for his people, and that his people fall short all too often. And these Beatitudes, you and I can never, never Reflect them with our lives if it's not for the work of God's Spirit in us. I'm pretty sure the more I try, the worse I do. Maybe you find yourself in the same position. But in just a few moments, we'll, we'll take communion and we'll eat of his broken body and his shed blood and, and we'll take of these elements to remember that God is a God of reconciliation, that this is about redeeming and, and making things right between us and him and this meal. Um, and this is one of the things the early church was really persecuted for because they were called cannibals. I want to make very clear, I am not saying that this, this is actual his body or his poured out blood, but it's symbolic. 
that he took on mercy so that we could be merciful. That he took on all poverty so that we could recognize that blessed are the poor. That he desired to be the ultimate peacemaker so that we could recognize that his, his sacrifice gives us an option of peace. That he took on all of the redemption of all things so that we could be a part of God's redemptive work in this world. So in just a few moments, as we take these elements, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you to take them this morning, recognizing that, that between his broken body and his shed blood, it gives us hope that he desires to redeem you and I. That even though the scriptures say only the pure will see God, that his spirit can make us pure. And so this morning, as... As we sing a song in just a moment, and then after the song, we'll take communion, and then I'll dismiss you after that. But normally, we invite you to come and kneel at a place of prayer, and we're not going to do that this morning. I mean, if you want to come and kneel and pray, you're welcome to, but I'm going to invite you to take this element. And as you take these elements, as you take communion this morning, to recognize that God desires to do something in and through us that's transformative. It's a way of us saying, God, you can have all of me, that I want you to make me holy, that the brokenness inside me, I don't want to be broken any longer. I I want you to restore me to the way I was created to be. So I'm going to ask the praise team to come, and and I'm going to close us in prayer. And then then after we sing this song, we'll take communion. So in the meantime, think about what God may want to do in you, where you need to let go of some things that you've been holding on to so that he can do his work in and through us because these teachings are, are great teachings and we can read them and say, oh, that, that would be a good person. But I'm convinced they're not just good principles, that they're what God calls us to. So would you stand with us this morning as we pray? Father, we thank you for our time together, for the way you are shaping us to be your people. We're thankful that these teachings of yours, this idea of you you being the God of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, that you call us to be the church for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. Father, we're not saying that, that good things are bad or that investing in, in things are bad, but we're saying that uh, when that becomes central to our lives, when you're teaching in the way you are and your spirit working in us isn't central to who we are, then we've missed the point. So help us to be the kind of church that offers mercy to those that need mercy, that offers grace and forgiveness to those that need to hear it. Help us never to find ourselves in positions in the church where we forget how you came to us so that we look down on others. Help us be the kind of place that recognizes that you offer life to us, and so help us to give that same life to others. We thank you for the way you were at work, and we pray that this Sermon on the Mount would shape us to be your people that reflect your values. So that no longer would people look at the church and say, oh, it's just a bunch of hypocrites. But they would look at the church and go, you know, I'm not sure I believe in this Jesus thing, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I believe that what they're doing is good. I'm pretty sure I believe that those people who claim to be Christ's followers, that they're transforming the world in some pretty cool plays, and they're not, they're not doing it by destroying stuff or by seeking power, but they're doing it by seeking to serve. Help us to be the kind of church that embodies that so that when people see us, they recognize you by the way we love one another and the way, by the way we love others. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.